0: Greek myths are weird, I mean, you've got Oedipus marrying his mother, the Titan Cronus chopping off Uranus's genitals, which was his father by the way, and Odysseus taking ten years to get back home from Troy. I mean Jesus, use a sat nav next time, Odysseus, to be fair to Odysseus. It wasn't his navigation that failed him, but he broke the golden rule of Greek myths. Don't anger the gods in fact. I personally believe one of the most unusual things about Greek myths is their depiction of the gods. Most religions today depict their deities as all-seeing, all-knowing, and all-loving. Ancient Greek gods, however, were fallible, and were not necessarily particularly moral beings. Take Zeus, father of the gods, as an example. He's a total asshole. For starters, Zeus was a randy fella. He may have had a wife in the goddess Hera but that didn't stop Zeus from being the town bike for Mount Olympus. He once slept with Nemassini, the daughter of Uranus, for nine successive nights, which led to her birthing the nine muses. Zeus also liked to sleep with particularly beautiful mortal women, including Aclamene, who then gave birth to Hercules, who I'm sure you've heard of. The worst of Zeus's sexual conquests was when he took a fancy to Europa, the ravishing daughter of the king of Phoenicia. Zeus transformed himself into a bull and hid among a herd of cattle near where Europa and her friends were playing. Europa, however, noticed a particularly beautiful bull among the herd and stroked its flanks. After a while, she felt compelled to climb on the bull's back. Of course, this bull was actually Zeus, who saw his moment of opportunity and rode off with Europa on his back. Abducting Europa, he galloped across the sea to Crete and then proceeded to rape or, in some stories, seduce her. In Greek myths, it's not really seen as a distinction. But even if he didn't rape her, he still abducted her, and took her miles from home to seduce her. Hardly the most consensual act. Still, at least Europa had a continent named after her. So, yeah. Silver linings, I guess. But the reason I'm explaining to you why Zeus is not a friendly god is because it is worth bearing in mind as I recount this particular myth, which is relevant to this episode's theme. May I recall, from episode 0, Prometheus, the benefactor of mankind. Not the mediocre alien prequel by Ridley Scott. He was a titan, which means he was the descendant of Gaia, Earth, and Uranus, the sky. You might remember he deceived Zeus at a meeting of the gods to decide the rights of man, by cutting an ox in half and wrapping the lean meat in one parcel and all the bones and fat in the other. He then tricked Zeus into picking the one full of fat and bones which meant humans could eat the meat and sacrifice the fat and bones by burning them to the gods. Zeus, being the father of all gods, powerful, and seemingly having an ego big enough to make Donald Trump blush, wasn't going to let this slide. As punishment, Zeus decides to hide the secrets of fire from mankind. Luckily, we had Prometheus keeping an eye out for us. He took it upon himself to steal fire back from the gods for humanity. He did this by hiding the fire within a hollowed-out fennel stalk. Not quite sure how. I would have thought a fennel stalk would be pretty flammable. But then again, this is a myth, so it doesn't have to make sense. To be honest, Greek myths rarely do. What I like to think is that Zeus woke up the next morning after a typical one-night stand with a random goddess, stumbled out of his room, discovered that the fire had disappeared, and shouted, Prometheus! like he was in a sitcom. However, all we know is that according to the myth, Zeus found out what had happened, and devised a way to punish both humanity and Prometheus. Not that humanity had done anything. It was all Prometheus. But like I said, Zeus is a complete hat. So, to punish humanity, Zeus had Hephaestus, the god of fire and patron to crafting, create the first woman. So you can also throw Sex's pig into the mix for Zeus. This woman was called Pandora, as Zeus was a big fan of the jewellery train that made easy low-effort birthday and Christmas gifts for his wife Hera. Anyway, Pandora ended up marrying Epimetheus, Prometheus' brother, even though Prometheus warned him not to. Clearly Epimetheus was as thirsty as Zeus. Anyway, prior to marrying, Pandora was given many gifts by the gods of Mount Olympus, including a mysterious jar. Zeus knew that eventually Pandora would get too curious about the jar and open it. Sure enough, she did. And in the process, she unleashed all the miseries that plague mankind, such as violence, disease and famine. However, there was one last thing left in the jar. Hope. Bit of an overreaction from Zeus, if you ask me, but there you go. If you're wondering why you've probably heard of Pandora's box rather than Pandora's jar, it's because the myth was translated by a Renaissance humanist, Erasmus, in the 16th century, and he ended up translating ancient Greek for jar as box. Prometheus was punished severely by Zeus, who nailed the Titan to a mountain in the Caucasus, where an eagle ate Prometheus' immortal liver every day. So I propose we all pay a tribute to Prometheus, because if it wasn't for his efforts against the total anus that is Zeus, we would not have fire. And well, without fire, the history of food would be very very different. I'm Tom, and welcome to A Bite of History. Episode 1. Where there is fire, there is food. It was a hard choice of subject for A Bite of History's first true episode. Whilst I won't be choosing to do this podcast in chronological order, in fact, some episodes will likely span centuries of history, however, for the first episode, I wanted to choose a really key moment in the history of food, and for it to be really early in history. Well, early enough for humans, anyway. So that's how I came to the decision to choose the discovery of fire. Before I get into the details of how fire revolutionised food and history, I need to make a few rules for you to bear in mind. Rule 1 is that obviously humans were not the first species to consume food. The idea of consuming nutrients for energy and growth goes back right to the beginnings of the Earth. However, as it stands, humans definitely have the most interesting and complex relationship with food. Rule 2 The discovery of fire and a lot of prehistory is, um wishy-washy. It's heavily theory-based. We certainly know lots about prehistory based on what evidence we have of the period. It's just there's a lot of gaps, and these have to be filled in with educated guesses. There are many conflicting ideas about the importance of fire, food and humans, which we'll go into in a bit more detail later. So for now, you need to understand that a lot of what I'm talking about in this episode is not necessarily cut and dried. Rule 3 is that there is no rule 3. I just felt like two rules wasn't enough and didn't want to do a lame fight club joke. Now I suppose our first question is when did humans discover fire and begin using it to cook? Well, that's easy. It was found by Mr Ugg in Africa 42,056 days ago. Ah. We wish. Unfortunately, the question of when fire was discovered is not really something that can be answered in such a way. Not without a time machine, anyway. Current understandings of the history of fire show that its use by humans was likely a very convoluted process. For example, what exactly do we mean when we say discovered? Most evidence of fire is based on the occurrence of charcoal found in the geology of an archaeological site. The oldest evidence of fire goes back 420 million years. That's 365 million years before even the first primates. Fire is naturally occurring, with the main source being lightning strikes causing wildfires. In likelihood, the first step by humans in discovering fire was probably an experience of wildfire. You would assume that the first hominid to come across fire probably didn't give a good account of themselves. I'd guess they pooed themselves and ran the other direction. However, research undertaken by Gilles Proutes, a primatologist at Iowa State University, observed savannah chimpanzees from Senegal during wildfires. Chimpanzees did not run from the fire. They stayed calm, monitored the fires and even moved into the burned out areas to forage. Chimpanzees are pretty closely related to humans. This might be a good indication to the idea that hominids understood how fire spreads. The second step would have been humans discovering that they could lengthen the time a fire lasts by using fuel. Pretty neat trick for early humans that would have scared off predators and provided light and warmth. This may have occurred as early as 1.5 million years ago in Africa, but again finding direct evidence isn't easy, as one-off samples aren't conclusive and widespread enough to prove use of fire. It isn't until 400,000 years ago where we can see the repeated use of fire at a half in an Israeli cave. Examples of fire in caves are particularly useful as fire doesn't occur naturally in caves, so archaeologists know that human control of fire was more definitive. Final stage of the discovery of fire involved humans actually knowing how to start a fire, and this is the most complex stage to date. proving when humans actually started creating fire is really hard, as evidence ultimately falls to deciding based on frequency of fires how likely it was the fire was man-made, For example, it was previously thought that humans gained control of fire two hundred and fifty thousand years ago. However, a couple of archaeological cave sites in the southwestern region of France. Suggests this isn't the case. Dating back to the Paleolithic era, that's 2.58 million years ago to about 11,700 years ago, a very small period of time, I know, these caves in France were used by Neanderthals, between 100,000 and 40,000 years ago. Now, there is a lot of evidence of fire being used deeper down in the geology of the caves, around 100,000 years ago, during a particularly warm period of the Paleolithic. However, The caves continued to be used by the Neanderthals for around 70,000 to 40,000 years ago, during a colder climate. Yet there's less evidence of fire. Which is strange, because you would assume fire would be more useful during a cold period. Why would the Neanderthals in this period stop using fire? Did they just forget? Or is it more likely that lightning needing a warm climate has something to do with it? The evidence from these caves in France suggests that man made fire might not go back as far as once thought. As archaeologist John Gowlett notes, the discovery of fire by humans is a long and complicated process. The discovery of fire is ultimately a mysterious question which we may never be able to answer. Just like what is the meaning of life? If a tree falls down in a forest without anyone around to hear it, does it make a sound? And why is Mrs. Brown Boy so popular when it is clearly awful? Now that we understand, Well, as much as we can, the history of humans and the discovery of fire, we ought to get back to the topic at hand. Food. But before I start to talk about fire and food, we need to have an idea of what early humans ate before fire. Once again, we end up looking to our close ancestors, the chimpanzees, to help answer this question. Of course, much like the way we evolved from primates to humans, so too has our diet. Chimpanzees eat leaves, fruit, bark grubs and raw meat, something which wouldn't have been different to early humans according to archaeological evidence. The study of plaque, as in the kind you find in your teeth, recovered from northern Spain and studied by archaeologists, gives us an insight to the diet of a hominid from 1.2 million years ago. So, without further ado, here is a menu for a 1.2 million year old restaurant, La Petite La Ah, monsieur, mademoiselle, bonjour, I am monsieur Tom, please pull up a border and take a seat. Bienvenue, welcome to Petite La Corte. Please allow me to read the menu. For entrees, we have the finest grass and pine seeds, sourced locally, of course. For the main course, we have a magnifique... Raw animal flesh, le bleu, if you will, is be very fresh or carefully aged in a prehistoric sun for extra flavor. For dessert, we have a classic, my friend. The glorious nutty taste of whatever insect happened to fly, cool or worm their way into the restaurant. Bon appétit. Thank God for fire. However, humans managed to harness fire, whether with the help of Prometheus, the discovery of wildfires, or aliens from the planet Magrathea. It changed the history of food, and in return, it changed the history of humans. Human civilization owes a lot to cooking, and potentially more than you think. For starters, in terms of health, cooking is pretty handy as it kills bacteria, helping our ancestors stave off food-related illnesses. Ever tried hunting mammoths when you've got food poisoning and diarrhoea? It's not advisable. Cooking also preserves food for longer. Useful when refrigerators and Tupperware are thousands of years from being invented. Don't forget how helpful cooking is for making things easier to eat and digest. I Don't know about you guys, but raw rice isn't pleasant to eat in my opinion. Arguably the biggest role fire and cooking have played on humanity is explained by anthropologist and primatologist Richard Wrangham in his book Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. Wrangham's theory would indicate that without fire, the most important organ of the human body, which has given us the cutting edge throughout history, would not be the tool it is today. I am of course talking about the brain. Hopefully you recall in episode 0 the definition of food. Any nutritious substance that people or animals eat, or drink, or that plants absorb in order to maintain life and growth. Well, when it comes to maintaining life, everything is constrained by how much energy it can attain from food. We might be more inclined to decrease our calorie intake today, but in prehistoric times, the more calories we could eat, the more successful an animal would be. You might think that most of our energy is burned off by activities and physical labour, but in truth most of our calories are used invisibly, powering our heart, digestive system and, particularly, the brain. In fact, when the body is resting, 20-25% of the body's energy is used by the brain. It's not a mystery that one of the biggest moments in human evolution was the increase in brain size, but at some point our ancestors had to find the calories to pay for this increase in size. Originally, Experts believe this intake was fulfilled by the consumption of meat in the human diet. Wrangham, however, thinks this increase in energy for the brain was more to do with a more efficient use of calories. It was cooking that helped humanity evolve and improve our brain size. So how does cooking help improve our calorie intake? For starters, it makes chewing a hell of a lot easier. I'm sure plenty of you out there have tried steak when it's rare, and you have to admit it's harder to eat compared to the more well-done version, even if the flavour is nicer. And it's the same for, say, carrots, for example. Carrots have a crunch to them raw, but roast them and they soften considerably. Providing energy to the human body is a complex equation. When it comes to eating, the calorie intake is reduced by the energy spent producing or finding food, as well as the time spent eating it. The longer an animal spends chewing its food, the more calories it burns in the process. A gorilla will eat 18 to 20 kilos of vegetation a day, because leaves, stems and herbs have low energy value. And a gorilla will spend most of their day eating, which in turn spends a lot of calories on the process of chewing. If Wrangham's right, the gorilla will never evolve larger brains unless they find a more efficient way of consuming food. But fire not only reduces the energy spent eating, but also helps the body digest food more efficiently than when food is raw. Cooking meat breaks down collagen – that's the connective tissues – and cooking plants softens the cell wall, releasing more starch and fat than in raw food. This means that the act of eating and digesting cooked food is a far better trade. Cooking food with fire would have given our ancestors far more time to expend energy on other activities than eating. Chewing on raw grizzly meat isn't a particularly intellectual pursuit, for example. Wrangham's theory is convincing if you ask me. It just makes sense. In order for our brains to increase in size, humans have to, at some point, have improved their energy sources to fuel the growth. Despite the quite logical rationale behind the theory, there are a couple of arguments against Wrangham. If we take Wrangham's view on cooking, then it has played a crucial part in the evolution of humanity. But detractors would argue that a change in diet, as a result, has devolved humans. You may have heard of a raw food diet. It is a particularly famous diet that theorises that we should eat food that our prehistoric ancestors would have eaten before we learnt to cook. Raw foodists believe by heating food over 4 degrees celsius that natural enzymes are destroyed, which helps us digest foods. You can sort of see the thinking behind this diet. A raw food diet seems more natural, as it was the diet of humans prior to the discovery of fire. But unfortunately, the diet ignores thousands of years of evolution and most scientific advice. But, for most people who follow raw food diets, lose a lot of weight, which is why it's a particularly popular diet in the first place. However, experts believe our bodies have evolved to no longer live on raw foods alone, and believe that about after six months, a healthy person could starve to death following a raw food diet. As such, I don't see raw food diets as an effective argument against the idea that fire and cooking have helped evolve humans. With raw food diets having advocates such as Gwyneth Paltrow, you know it's going to be about as scientifically sound as waving your genitalia through the tiger enclosure at the zoo. A far more problematic issue for Wrangham's theory is something we've already been over. When exactly did humans start using fire regularly to cook? In order for evolution to work its magic, it needs to have plenty of time. More than 250,000 years or so that current evidence suggests, at best. Ideally, we need to see evidence of fire being used around 1.8 million years ago, as that's when the first Homo erectus appeared. They're the first human-looking hominids, by the way. In order for there to be enough time for cooking to have an effect on human evolution, there is evidence of potential fire, with stone tools and charred bones being found in South Africa, which date back a million years but this is tentative, and still remains just that bit too short. But, to be fair to Wrangham's theory, evidence of the first use of fire is small, and due to the lack of preservation of evidence, it is the equivalent of finding a needle in a haystack. Perhaps further excavations in the future may back his theory up. Whilst fire has certainly benefited from the history of mankind and cooking, let's not forget that fire has often been a double-edged sword for the planet. For starters, Think of all the trees chopped down in the pursuit of firewood. There is no denying that deforestation humans have caused since the beginning of history, and fire has been one of its key drivers. Burning things tends to create a fair bit of carbon dioxide as well, contributing to greenhouse gases, and therefore climate change in the long run. In fact, toxins released when burning things may in turn have affected human evolution as well. A couple of studies by scientists have identified a mutation in the human genes that allows the human body to metabolise the toxins released by fire more effectively. It would seem that whilst fire may have helped us evolve our brains, we have also had to evolve our bodies to use fire. We all know that fire is volatile as well. No doubt, hundreds of thousands of people, hell, maybe even millions of people throughout history, have managed to receive burn injuries from cooking with fire. Cooking has caused many large-scale fires as well. The Great Fire of London in 1666 is thought to have started in a bakery on Pudding Lane. Speaking of bakeries, let us give the thought to all the delicious foods that fire have allowed us to make. Processed foods, fast foods, sugary baking and fatty meals. All the result of humans being able to cook with fire. This has led to issues with obesity, heart disease and type 2 diabetes. Worst of all the negatives is that fire has led to the existence of high-end restaurants that charge you £20 or more for a burger that doesn't even include chips. Despite all these negatives, there's one thing we can be sure about when it comes to cooked food, and that is that it tastes better than raw food. By cooking food, humans are causing carbohydrates and amino acids to react to heat, making ingredients more chemically complex. It would seem that it is this chemical complexity what makes food tastier. The most chemically complex raw food is fruit, which is designed by plants to appeal to animals, and unsurprisingly it is one of the raw foods humans don't cook as much. The question is whether finding cooked foods tastier is an ape preference or a learned behaviour for humans. We cannot ask our ancestors whether they think cooking food is tastier, but studies have shown that apes prefer cooked food over raw choosing baked potatoes, carrots and sweet potatoes over raw ones in most cases. By following our taste buds, and using cooking as a tool, humanity has changed forever. Food has moved beyond just a necessity for survival. It has become a social pastime, and for some in society, an art form. Families gather round tables at Christmas to share food. Religions have practices based around foods, and chefs through the centuries have created new recipes and tried to perfect the art. By cooking, humans have changed the makeup of society and as a result changed history. And that is the focus of this podcast. For most of human history, if you wanted to cook food, there was only been one way to do it: with fire. Until 150 years ago when the first gas range was invented, open fires were our primary method. Today, cooking with fire in the developed world is mostly down to barbecues, with the Weber grill popularising the pastime in the 1950s. Unless, of course, you're using a gas grill for your barbecues. In which case you aren't really barbecuing, you're just using an outdoor oven. I mean, honestly, don't invite me around for a barbecue and get a gas grill out because you've just lied to me. You're not going to get the same charcoal taste to the food as on a proper barbecue with briquettes. Ugh. You might as well just shove some burgers on a frying pan inside and bring them into the garden. Honestly, it really annoys me. Almost as much as when there's a service charge in restaurants. If I want to pay a tip, I will. And I will decide how much. Don't make me feel awkward by asking you to take that cheeky 10% you've added to the bill. And another thing, why on earth do restaurants serve food on those stupid slates or wooden boards? They're so hard to eat on. Just use a goddamn plate. Honestly, do you think your restaurant is better than centuries of human invention? Anyway, where was I? Oh yes. Whilst barbecues might be the only source of open fire cooking for most today, 3 billion people around the world still cook using solid fuels such as wood, charcoal, coal, dung and crop waste, mostly in developing countries. But even today, fire remains a common source of cooking for many. No matter how you look at it, whether you agree that humans evolved due to cooking with fire, if you think fire has been more beneficial or disadvantageous to humanity, or you believe a paleo diet is the correct lifestyle choice, there's no denying that history has been shaped by fire and cooking. Humans remain the only life form on Earth that cooks their food. We are the cooking animal, and that looks like it will never change. get me started on restaurants that use French words like jus and creme anglaise. Just say sauce slash juice and custard for Christ's sake. Doesn't make you look posh, it makes you look pretentious. Another annoying restaurant trend is that sharing concept. Ugh. If I wanted tapas or meza, I would have gone to a Spanish or Greek restaurant. I don't want to share a bunch of small expensive scattered dishes from around the table. What's wrong with just sitting down and just eating one dish? That way you'll know you won't be hungry because someone's ordered a sharing dish you don't like.